everybody. The Sens Nation podcast is brought to you by Jim K. Ford, your home of the all-new Ford Maverick. Designed to seize the day, this beautiful truck is built Ford Tough and gives you the best of both worlds. Compact on the outside, but still big enough on the inside to seat five and store all of your stuff. Not to mention the very cool 8-inch touchscreen on your dash to help you get your work done. Learn more and pre-order the all-new Ford Maverick today from our friends at JimKFord.com. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Jim K. Ford Sends Nation podcast with Steve Warren and the coach, Greg Kennedy. Goes in, drops it back in the high slot. Here's Kachuk with a chance. Flips it ahead towards the goal. Brady Kachuk scores! First career hat trick for the Ottawa captain. There is Gord Miller from TSN with the call. I love Gord Miller's calls. They're great. As Brady Kachuk finishes off a hat trick in something of a shocking win over the Lightning. See what I did there? Shocking Lightning. It's a 4 nothing win for the Sens. who won 4 of 5. Zanton Forsberg taking control of the Ottawa net. Thomas Shabbat fourth in ice time among Sens defensemen. Got JBD up from the minors. Lassie Thompson going down. Delzato clearing waivers. And a whole lot more coming up today. And our third man in today. Later on in the show will be Ian Mendez from The Athletic. But first, let's say hello to the coach. Greg Kennedy, how are things, Greg? Things are good, Steve. Good morning to you. It's morning for me out here in, in Slave Lake, Alberta. An early morning. Got in late last night from uh, from lovely Gibbons on a road trip. We, we, hey, it was a 2-0 and weekend, pal. We've won three in a row. We're on fire. Look out. Well, you beat Gibbons. That's something, yeah. right? Where's yes, Gibbons? it is. Gibbons hasn't won a game all year, Steve. <laughs> oh, dear. Poor Gibbons. Yeah. Poor Gibbons. It's in Alberta somewhere, Gibbons? Is it a town? Yeah, is it a city? It, it, well, it's a it's a small town. It is slightly north and east of Edmonton, probably about 45 minutes outside of Edmonton to the east. So it's about two and a half hours for us. Yeah, got it. it was it was a late night, but uh, we're here. We're, we're good to go, big guy. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, certainly Sens fans are in a good mood. Just the one game since we last were with you here on the podcast, and it is a 4 nothing win over the Tampa Bay Lightning. It's a fourth straight win for Anton Forsberg in the Ottawa net. No Senator goalie has done that since 2017 when Craig Anderson won six in a row. It's funny recently how all these personal achievements that you want to be excited about pop up and then you immediately go oh my god it's been that long it shouldn't be that long a four four game win streak's nice and everything but it sh- you shouldn't have to wait four years between them still though Forsberg seems to be wrestling control of the Ottawa net away from the rest what do you think well as a, as, as loyal listeners would know I'm not a fan of uh, Anton Forsberg but I'm a fan of Anton Forsberg's results he's doing well uh, and as we've said on this show many times if you're you play well, you stay in. You don't necessarily you win, and you're in is a is a tough ask, I think. But if you play well, you stay in, and he's he's playing well. Let's let's ride it. I mean, other than three games and four nights when he needs a spell or rest off here and there, um, he's been great. So let's ride it. So you've got Forsberg, you've got Philip Gustafson, Matt Murray, who's hurt again. Jeez, Shocker. and in the minors, you've got Matt Sogard, Kevin Mandelise. And Levi Marilainen, who's that Finnish goalie who just got named to the World Junior Team for Finland. We talked about this in the last episode. He was also the goalie of the week in the Ontario Hockey League. So when you look at that group, there's potential everywhere. 
I mean, they could be sky's the limit. Could be this is as good as it gets. Not not much more. But who do you think is going to come out of this mess? It sounds like you don't buy into the Forsberg factor just yet. Who do you yeah. think comes out of that group long term to be kind of the core goalie of this team, the number one? Well, I, I I would have said I think your next long term is probably Gustafson, um, but it might be a short term long term if that makes sense. He 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 he'll be number one I would think next year, uh, and then it's only a matter of time before um, either the either the Dane or the Finn pushes him out. I think that's the battle. Like Kevin Mandelize doesn't project out to be a number one guy. Um, and, well, then again, neither does Forsberg. So I, I think it's Gustafson and that it's, that it's, uh, it's Sogard and Marilinen for the, uh, unparalleled success years, I, I believe. And Mandelize might be a wild card in there. Who knows? But he was the Quebec junior hockey league goalie of the year. So that's a guy I always like guys who, you know, ascend to the top of their level. And, uh, he did that. So who knows what he'll do at the American hockey league level. It's way too early to know, but it's a nice group of goalies all in all. Uh, for this organization I, I feel like there's a diamond in there somewhere for sure somebody's going to come out like I, I don't think that we need to worry about making a a trade at some point like a like a Matt Murray uh, trade I don't think that's going to happen again um, if, if if anything it'll be the trading of one of these prospects one of these guys get moved out in some sort of a deadline deal be it uh, this year or next year to uh, to somebody when they're time to when it's time to stack up when they're when the sends are actually buyers at the deadline they've got a nice little group of assets here that they could move out. Hearing Dean Brown and Gord Miller, uh, Gord Miller, I was just talking about Gord Miller a second ago. Dean Brown and Gord Wilson, Gordy's going to kill me for that. Uh, they were talking uh, about Tampa going into that game on Saturday and how there was over thirty million dollars worth of salary not in the lineup, and the biggest two would be Braden Point. And uh, and Kucherov seems like they're going to almost do the same thing they did last year, where they leave all this money out of the lineup, and then opening night of the playoffs, suddenly everybody's going to get healthy again. We'll see how that goes, but um, that's a factor when talking about the achievement, but a small factor. The Sens were looking dead and buried a couple of weeks ago, and to win four of five as they did, and three of those four wins, by the way, against true Stanley Cup contenders. It's been an impressive run. You said in the last episode you felt like they turned the corner, and I'm sure that's galvanized with that win over Tampa. Yeah, and and you know what? Those guys being out of the lineup is a factor, a factor in a different way, Steve. You're playing a, a team that's hurting, a team that's got injury problems, and okay, here's our chance to win. Let's make some hay while the sun shines, and they did. It, like Imagine us sitting here talking about a loss to that Tampa team without Kucherov, without um, – Sorelli and uh, Chernak was out too, right? And and you yeah. mentioned uh, Kucherov and Point. Like, imagine how we'd be reacting if they'd lost. And we'd say, like, geez, they can't even take advantage of this. So it is a factor. They took advantage of a team that was was down a, a good chunk of, of men and change and uh, and turned it into a win. They have seemed to have refound their, their focus, their energy, their identity. Uh, I, I like the move of... Uh, of Nick Paul being moved away from uh, from the Stutzla Brown combo. Maybe it gets Brown going if he's playing with a uh, you know another speedster and a better bit of more skill there in his line. And it just I think it gives him a little more chance for some offense to come out of that second line. And and it's it's shown here they're they're, they're playing very well. And I only bring that that angle up just to make sure we've covered all angles that people know that that was Tampa yeah. Bay's situation. But another angle is they had won five straight going in, so they weren't exactly 
you know, those, those guys make them a lot better, but it wasn't a, a scrub team coming in just because of those injuries. They'd been playing very well, five straight victories. Like I say, um, as a coach, Greg, you're always one of the first things you're doing when you're getting the team organized at the start of a season is figuring out what your power play is going to look like. Um, what kind of power play you're going to run in terms of setup, breakout and all that. And my, my God, what the Sens power play looks like right now is like night and day compared to a, a, just a couple of weeks ago. What are you seeing right now that's got that power play looking as efficient and slick and fluid as it does? It's just, it's five skill guys doing their thing. It's a lot less, I know we, we talk about structure all year, but it's a lot less structure. They've got their sets that they run and, and you can see them. There's, there's the pop out to the to the to the slot guy we see that a lot but generally speaking it's five guys sort of freewheeling and it either ends with a slot shot or it, or it ends with a Norris 1T from his off wing or you got the the Stutzla coming up high on his side and curling around and having a shooting lane there but other than that they just they move the puck around so much better than they did before there's so much not just movement of puck but movement of players up down in out around and they go and it just it's so much more freewheeling um, it's just five guys having fun, Steve, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree. That first goal against Tampa was a good indicator of that. And and the comfort level and the confidence that just comes with repetition. You know, I think about, about Batherson in those early days when he was trying to crack the NHL and he was getting some looks with Matt Duchesne and he got a goal in his first game and people were all excited, but he just, he faded after that. You can see that guy really believes not only is he a an NHL player, legitimately an NHL player. I think he now realizes that he's got the skill to be a star in the game. And that moment where he's basically got the puck down low in the corner and he realizes I've got that split extra second to bring it over onto my forehand. In those early days, he's probably trying to whack it to the front of the net with his backhand. He took a little extra second, get it on the forehand, and absolutely perfect saucer pass over to Norris who calmly wires it upstairs with a one-timer that's sort of an example of how that line's coming along that power play's coming along that they just uh with repetition they just not only feel they belong but they can be elite I think oh yeah for sure and they they all will be or, or close to elite I I yeah, you, know, you threw that word out, didn't you, buddy? Hey, are they elite? They are. Yeah, yeah. Like Batherson has elite hands. Norris has a, a, an elite shot. Holy smokes! Like they, he belongs over there. He is. He's one of the better players in the league with a one tee off that side of the ice. Um, Shabbat brings a, a, a. It's an element of calmness. Like he is so calm with the puck. They used to say Doug Harvey looked like he was playing a game sitting in a rocking chair. Shabbat has that at times in the offensive zone. You've got Kachuk with elite level feistiness, right? And then you throw in whatever guy you want there, whether it's Stutzla, sometimes it's Connor Brown. Um, it just, it's five guys, skill guys playing together. And they're at a stage now, maybe Stutzla's not quite there, but they're at a stage now where they have the confidence to do things as you just alluded to, that maybe they weren't willing to do or, or able to do or or even willing to try to do, uh, you know, six months or a year ago. Yeah, the big five right now, all five of them in these last five games are up above a point a game or more. That's, and of course, we're alluding to the three guys in the top line, then Stutzla and Shabbat. So that's, that's driving things, as is Anton Forsberg's goaltending, providing stability there. So if both those factors continue on, I think uh, the Sens could do some good things this year. Playoffs, 
might be too late, even though we're still, what, 60 games from the end here. Um, it's still, in all likelihood, too late. Because you probably have to go on, like, to get back into the discussion to be within, you know, two points of that last place team, you'd have to almost go on an eight-game win streak. And then when you get there, oh, play about 700 hockey after that. So both of those factors, unlikely really for any team when you get down to it. But it's nice to see we're starting to shake off what uh, this this miserable first month and a half and uh, starting to look like an NHL club again. Thomas Shabbat, want to talk about him. I think a lot of fans were a little concerned initially just looking at the game sheet. like, what? Thomas Shabbat had 20 minutes of ice time? He was fourth among Ottawa Senators in ice time among defensemen? That's outrageous. Well, this is what DJ Smith had to say quite rightly after the game to explain it. A lot of penalty kills, you know, and he's, you know, not killing much tonight. Um, and all that happens. So, but when you win the game um, and you've got the lead, you don't have to put them out there much in the last five minutes. I mean, if that's a one goal game, Shabby's probably playing three of those last five. He was as sharp as I've seen him in a long time on the power play tonight. His game away from the puck, um, playing against the other team's top lines, his puck movement uh, has come a long way. His last, for me, his last five, six games have been really good. Is Thomas Shabbat playing the best hockey of his career right now, in your opinion, Greg, or have you seen him at other points no, where he's been? It. This good? is it. He, this is his best. That I, the best I've seen him play. Uh, maybe the production's not the same, and some people might be concerned about that. But this is this is the best he's played. It's the best he's played all season. It's far better than any performance, uh, any stretch of games last season. He he's arrived, and I think he's become the player that uh, that we can expect to see every night, night in, night out. A few seasons ago, I want to say like three years ago, something like that, he was off to an amazing start to the season, something like 30-something games, and he was around a point-a-game pace. And then he suffered an injury on a hit from Matt Martin of the Islanders in the neutral zone, and it took him out for that season for, I don't know, about a month. And he really wasn't right after that in terms of point production. Um, So I might look back to that area and say, okay, well, point production was there. But I, I see a much more balanced defenseman, and I feel like he could be in better shape with a few bounces here and there, even the goals. Cause right now he has zero goals, zero goals and 14 assists on the season. And uh, I, I mean, I bet Brady Kachuk probably offers to give him that goal last night. It was, it was entirely scored because Kachuk deflected it and initially looked like, Oh, finally Shabbat got a goal last night. Um, I'm sure Kachuk in his heart of hearts would have given that goal to Shabbat if he could just to get him off the schneid. But yeah, I agree with you completely. I think this is the best hockey we've seen Thomas Shabbat play because it's not just all offense all the time in an Eric Carlson vein. He seems to have figured out, and and maybe the the tough first month the club had uh, played a role in it, that he's like, you know, accepting that concept of, okay, I got to dial this back offensively. I just see a really balanced hockey player on both sides of the puck, not just creating offense, but understanding what he needs to do in his own end. And wait till the day comes where he has a permanent, no more screwing around. This is your permanent right side partner, right? Just think right. forward. Look, just take a brief look forward to Shabbat and pair one with, I don't know, Zub, Sanderson on pair two with whoever they want to put there. Maybe it's JBD. That'll be a that'll be a competition for a later date. But just think ahead to oh, when he, when he's at his best, he's playing with the same guy for a good seventy five percent of his minutes and due to a lack of depth on the blue line, he's had to shift around with who he's playing with still this season. So down the road, it's only going to get better. You mentioned JBD. 
Jacob Bernard Docker, their former first-round draft pick. He is up from the minors. This is his first pro season, graduated uh, from North Dakota last year. And I'm right in thinking that. I'm, sometimes time gets away from me. I think it was last year that he arrived in Ottawa, played a few games after he left North Dakota, whether he graduated or not. I don't think he graduated, but <laughs> that was just last year that transition occurred, right? Yeah, he's got two years left on his entry-level deal, last year being the there first year. Yep. Right. So he's up from the minors now. They call him up. Lassie Thompson goes down. We both agree that we liked Lassie Thompson. And do you think this is the right decision? Or would you like him to stay around in the NHL, particularly when, in the meantime, you're giving ice time to people like Dylan Hetherington and Victor Mete? Well, I think it would be different if this were a uh, competitive team or a more competitive team. I think that there's a part of... Uh, in DJ Smith's thinking and in organizationally thinking that, okay, we are not going to be a playoff team. Uh, they, they probably admitted that internally. So let's not have the kids up here playing 12 to 15 minutes. I mean, Lassie Thompson's minutes started dropping uh, the longer he stayed here. So it makes it easier to send him down to play a good, I don't know, 18, 20 minutes a night in Belleville. Uh, same thing with JBD. So if they're both down, down there, then they, they can't both be playing. Well, I guess they could. But it just makes sense to have one here at a time. Just let him, let him play, let him get some experience. And as long as he's getting minutes, he's staying. And, and if not, then, then flip him in and out and keep, it, uh, keep the development sort of moving with, with extra minutes and power play time and PK time in Belleville. They showed Eric Brandstrom up in the press box on Saturday afternoon, having the popcorn and you know, just keeping an eye on things. And the word is it's going to be sometime around Christmas that he'll be ready to go from that broken hand. So there's another left-shot defenseman in the mix. Mete and Hetherington, both left-shot guys. Does he have an opportunity to just get right in there and leapfrog those two defensemen? I would think. I mean, they um, they like him. We, we know they like him, and we know that they're – God, if there's one, if Pierre wants one thing for Christmas, it's for Eric Branchner to become a Norris candidate, right? That's that's the biggest wish of this organization. It's the long term two holes on the right side to play with Shabbat and Sanderson. Branchner left shot, but plays right. JBD plays right. Uh, he sorry, not Hevington. Uh, Thompson plays right. So. Who's going to be there long term? Branstrom uh, kind of might be in the lead because he's with the big club for now. And this is an opportunity, yet another opportunity for him to seize seize the day when he gets back healthy and show that he can play and be an everyday NHLer. Because you got to believe that this is it, buddy. Like, it, it's either going to happen this year or it's time to give up. I'm trying to remember his contract situation. And I've got him as an RFA at the end of the year. That, that sounds right to you? Uh, Brandstrom is definitely going to be an RFA at the end of yeah. this season. So so this is it. Like, like piss or get off the pot. Either he's going to he's going to prove it, or he's done. Like just you know, it's time. You think he's in Logan Brown land where the organization has already seen enough? I feel like he'll get more rope even than a former first rounder would. You gave up the asset of a first round pick for Logan Brown, and he hung on for a long time. But like you just talked about, I mean, you gave up Mark Stone for this guy, and you called it the greatest day of your life as a general manager. I don't think there's any way, shape, or form that he can be in Logan Brown land where they'll either not qualify him or trade him somewhere else. I still think they're going to give Branstrom a year or two more. 
I branched him for, for no other reason than they should have learned something from Logan Brown. Like, to me, they hung on to Logan Brown two years too long. With each passing month, the number of interested suitors who still thought there was something to Logan Brown dropped. Each each month went by that he wasn't in the NHL or that he was injured or that he wasn't producing. At one point, there may have been all, every team in the league would have been interested in making offers for Logan Brown. But by the time you moved him out of here, you only had maybe two or three offers to, to choose from, and you ended up with Zach Sanford. The longer you wait on Branstrom, there comes a point where decreasing value of the asset, it's decreasing, it's decreasing, it's decreasing. And if his play doesn't help it rise, the value of him, his own value, then you're screwed in the end and you'll get nothing for him. So I think if no other reason than they learn something from Josh, uh, Josh Brown, they will move Branstrom earlier. They won't wait that long, but do you, do you qualify him at the end of this season? I don't know. Let's see what happens at the trade deadline first, I guess. I won't mention that Logan Brown has five points in yeah. six games yeah, for yeah. the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, that's I, a, and I just called him second. Josh again. <laughs> There's so many Browns. What can Brown do for you? Uh, we should talk a little bit about the other defenseman story of the week, and that was Michael Delzato. He's placed yeah. on waivers and clears waivers, and Delzato was a guy they just signed to not a one-year deal, but a two-year deal. Even in the case of Matt Murray, I mean, he was sent, he was clear, he went through waivers and was sent to the minors, but not until he had played a season and change. Michael Delzato has only been an Ottawa senator since October, and that's a guy that the pro scouting staff, Pierre Dorian, the buck stops with Pierre Dorian. I'd like to see us stop talking about the pro scouting. The buck stops with Pierre Dorian and and generally the way that they've evaluated professional existing NHL players has not been very good. And this would be exhibit A. Again, it's not a one-year fill-in band-aid deal. You signed this guy to a two-year contract and you've already decided he can't help us and put him on waivers. Thoughts on Michael Delzato? Yeah, I, I was doing a little bit of research before we came on here, Steve. They they brought him in here to be a, a top 4D. And for the most part, almost by default, when he dressed, he did play maybe fourth or fifth minutes. But you didn't play him for the first uh, two games of the season. You didn't even play until game three. And in game three, he played sixth in minutes by defenseman. He slowly worked his way up to to most of the time he was close to fourth in minutes, but not no differentiation between him and anybody else. So the question is, who made the mistake here, and what exactly was the mistake? Was the mistake that you believed that Michael Delzato was a number four defenseman, or was the mistake that you didn't maybe play him in a number four role? Well, his minutes say that he was kind of sort of maybe a number four, but with quality of partner, it was never good enough. The guy he was playing with was never good enough. So now you're left to wonder, all right, who screwed up? And I got to believe that anybody who identified Michael Delzato as being a top four D in the NHL is wrong. That was the mistake. So now my next question is, you gave this guy $2 million as a free agent. Does this affect the Senators long-term is there a possibility that somebody maybe doesn't want to come here because they look at this organization and say, well, you signed Matt Murray and then you cleared waivers on sent him down. You signed Michael Delzato and within two months you've sent him down. So I'm wondering if long-term on top of all your other problems with trying to attract free agents, does this cause problems with attracting free agents in the future? That's got to be a factor for sure. If this is how you're going to do that guy, maybe I'm, you know, I mean, there was already a lot working against the Sens to start with, ownership, 
uh, watching guys like Mark Stone and Eric Carlson not taken care of, real key guys on the team, they let them walk. So if I'm one of those UFAs that are out there, whether it's someone low-end like Delzado or a high-end player, my, my thought is going to be, okay, well, it's probably not going to go very well for me in terms of a two-way commitment. So, yeah, I think it def- definitely plays a factor when, when you look at it. To me, it's it's so easy with Delzado. Evaluation yeah. is not an easy thing. I get that. I, I understand that. You, you bring in a bunch of NHL-caliber players. There's not a massive difference between the guys who are going to be your, you know, your bottom six forwards or your fourth, fifth defenseman and the guys that are going to be down in the minors. It's, it, you know, when you're evaluating in a training camp, it, it, you know, you'll see some good things, you'll see some bad things. But the one thing that's so easy to identify is lack of pace that, that should eliminate you from consideration. I saw it the day that Dion Phaneuf got to Ottawa. Mm. I saw it with Wade Redden when the Rangers were signing him to a six-year contract worth six million a year i was like do you guys not have access to senator games to see the lack of pace on this guy at this point in his career and i saw it with delzato the second he got here what 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 are you seeing here there's just no real level of quickness that you need okay fine a ron hainsey type signing for a one year but two years that made no sense to me yeah and and you would have seen that that lack of pace you would have look at his minutes look at his ice time wherever he's been for the last two or three years. What made you think this guy could play in your top four when it was evident to all, as you just said, from day one, he he, he wasn't even in the lineup for game one and two. Like it was that obvious. And it wasn't, we find out after the fact, it wasn't that he had a nagging injury from the off season. He just wasn't good enough to be in your top four, not alone your top four. He wasn't good enough to be in your top six for game one of the season. And he's your supposed answer to this top 4D. That's a major, major error by somebody in player evaluation who then did a sales job to a GM who then made the error, compounded the error by saying, yeah, okay, we're going to do this and gave him a deal. It's just inexcusable. All right, so let's change gears a little bit here. And we're going to be joined by our good friend, our third man in here uh, on this uh, on this day. It's uh, Ian Mendez from the Athletic. How are things, Ian? Steve, great to be uh, great to be with you on this uh, on this uh, weekend. And uh, yeah, things are uh, things are fantastic. Excellent. Well, we've only got you for a little t- a little while because you got a big cowboy game coming up this afternoon, right? Yeah. See, I if I had my choice, if somebody said to me, "Do you want to record a podcast before a Cowboys game or after a Cowboys game?" Especially in December. With playoff ramifications, I'll take the pregame hit because I don't know where where my mood's going to be in about five hours from now. Yeah, <laughs> such as such as it goes for the the Cowboy fan. I'm a Packers fan, so I'm in a great mood. Plus, my fantasy league team uh, in the TSN 1200 pool is doing very well, so uh, I'm in a good NFL headspace right now. So it's all good. Uh, yeah, but let's let's get into things. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Brady Kachuk and his resurgence. Like he is r- really really come on. I think a lot of people might have been concerned about that, given that he missed all of training camp. What kind of a start would this guy get off to? What have, what have your impressions been of Brady Kachuk? Are you seeing, or have you seen throughout the first, I don't know, 20 games or so for Kachuk, have you seen any sort of hangover for this guy from missing camp? You know, I, I will admit, I think there was a stretch there, Warnsey, where he was a little, he was a little, like, 
not and flat's probably not the right word, but you could tell he wasn't qu- quite up to to speed. But you watch him in the last week or two, and in particular on the the Saturday game against Tampa, and, and this is before he got the hat trick. I, I think he had the big hit on uh, was it Yan Ruda? Who did he hit behind the net? Uh, yes, yeah, it was. Anyway, anyway, yeah, and you're just seeing him kind of become that physical dominant force again. And I think when when he signed the contract. I know that there was some people saying, I don't know, eight million per on a guy. There were some people saying his ceiling is a twenty goal, forty point guy. I'm sorry, but you you're looking at him right now. I think you're seeing twenty five to thirty five goal potential. I think you're seeing sixty to seventy point potential. But maybe more importantly, you're seeing the leader of this team. You're seeing the 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 catalyst, the straw that stirs the drink, the heartbeat. And so all of those things that might have taken a couple of weeks to get going have gotten going. And uh, you know, he himself said uh, yesterday after after the game on Saturday, I asked him, "Do you feel like you're playing at your peak?" And he said, "Yeah." But then he also alluded to the fact that I think we still have another gear or two, and that's with me and Norris, Batherson. And that's what I think is really exciting is that you're seeing these pieces. As much as there's dysfunction everywhere else and the team is struggling, you kind of feel like Shabbat has morphed into a legit number one defenseman and they've got a legitimate number one line now. Like we we didn't know that a year ago at this time. And Kachuk is absolutely uh, a driving force behind uh, that line success. And I think there's some reason for optimism there that that he is going to be worth every dollar of that of that massive contract you had a really interesting article in the athletic about past training camp holdouts i thought it was really good because i think it really set on its ear the notion that it's a big deal to miss training camp um maybe can you can you remember some of the names that you investigated and researched and and maybe for hockey fans is training camp overrated when you get down to it yeah you know what like i wonder if if at some point with hockey, with hockey players, if you would allow them, the older they get, I don't want to say make training camp optional, but boy, you, you start to wonder about the amount of, uh, you know, importance we place on it. And the one guy, and I don't, again, I don't have the numbers on me, but like Miko Rantanen, remember one year, like he missed most of training camp with the Avalanche. He was in RFA. He just came out of the gates on fire. Uh, I think Johnny Goudreau had a pretty good start too the year that he signed just before the season started. So I know what happens is a lot of people will say, well, remember William Nylander. Nylander came back. Well, that guy missed like two months of the season, right? Like he didn't sign until November 30th at midnight. So I think not everybody can do it, but I think we're starting to understand that Brady Kachuk is maybe in that stratosphere of the special players. And, and maybe he doesn't have the offensive upside of Rantanen and Johnny Goudreau, but special players, uh, unique talents uh, don't necessarily need training camp as much as everybody else. Like, like Eric Carlson back in the day always reminded me, or, or I always got the impression that if Eric Carlson missed training camp and just started the season, he'd be okay. I think some guys need training camp. And then there's other self starters like Brady Kachuk, like, Carlson, I think, was just a freak of nature. And Brady is just a guy who's got an internal motor. There's different ways you can get to that place. But I, I think that that Kachuk has established himself as, as a guy that might not need the full, full, full training camp. And I think that in the big picture, too, we still haven't seen his prime 
you know, you're talking, you're talking seasonally here now. We haven't seen this guy's prime just as a young man. 22 is not the age where most people say you've reached your prime. I mean, that's going to come for this guy at 23, 24, 25 with one off season of great training after another. And um, I mean, the sky's the limit for this guy. Meanwhile, DJ Smith, he's got to be feeling very good. I mean, compared to where he was, say, five games ago, he's got to be in a, a little more comfortable headspace. There were s- discussions when they were going so sideways that, um, you know, may, maybe they have to make some serious changes here. But he is, uh, he's got to feel a lot more comfortable right now. And this is what he had to say about that top line led by Kachuk. That's a line that could be good for the next, you know, 10, 12 years. I mean, you're, you're looking at the Bergeron line that, you know, those two have played together forever. Um, you know, these three guys are all best friends. Um, they're all big. They're all capable of hitting, banging into people, making plays. You know, I, I think it's a real line. They can check, they can score, you know, and I'm at this point trying to play them against everyone's best lines and, and they're getting better every day. So, I mean, if I'm an Ottawa Senator fan, I'm excited to watch these three play together for a long time. So there's DJ Smith after the win over Tampa on Saturday afternoon. Are we getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, making the comparison to that Boston Bruin line, which has basically been Bergeron, Marchand, and, well, whoever the all-star of any given season has been. Is it a little early for those comparisons? No, I listen, I think when you start to look at the production that they've gotten out of them, uh, I think it, it, it's fair to say that they've got the potential to be a dominant line in this league, and, and that's what you want, right? But... I think the Bruins, they've had that perfection line going for years, right? Pasternak, Bergeron, Marchand. The the key to Boston's success, though, yeah, those guys were great. But guess what? They had Dave Krejci on the second line. And they were able to make some trades. And they had, uh, you know, at, at times a stable top four. And they had Tuka Rask. Like, that's what made the Bruins great. Like, yes, the Bruins had arguably the best line in hockey. But they had a little bit of a better supporting cast. Like, to me, this is what uh, this is the key here, Warnsey. Batherson, Norris, Kachuk is a legitimate number one line. Like, I, I don't think there's a debate. I think a few months ago, people were like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they have the offensive upside. No, I, I think they do. I think it's fair to say that that trio, like, it wouldn't shock me if at some point they they could combine for 90 goals or 100 goals amongst the three of them. So I think they're a legitimate number one line. The question is, how do you build around them? Like, how do you make Tim Stutzler the number two center or number two? Like, that's going to be the key. And then there's the argument to be made, are they too top-heavy? Do you need to slide Batherson down with Timmy Stutzler to spread the wealth a little bit? We saw that on the back end. They split up Shabbat and Zub because it was like they were so good that the discrepancy between Zub and Shabbat and everybody else was so great they had to spread it out. I feel like that's what we're seeing on the, on the forward line. The discrepancy between Batherson, Norris, and Kachuk and everybody else is so great do you need to spread it out a little bit? That's the big question. But boy, you mentioned that line and the, and the big five. I don't know if there's five players playing better for a team in the league right now than these guys have been, particularly in this five-game stretch. I think that all five, you throw in that big line, then Stutzla and Shabbat, I believe they're all at a point-of-game pace in these five games. Is that the biggest reason for the turnaround? There's that old cliche your best players have to be your best players, which makes no sense, by the way. It makes no sense whatsoever. Your best <laughs> yeah. players, if they weren't your best players, you'd call them something else. But obviously, your best players have to be your best performing players on, on any given night. And that's certainly been the case here in the last five games. Has that been the biggest reason for the turnaround, do you think? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think it, it's, uh, it's goaltending, right? Anton Forsberg has come in 
particularly in that Carolina game when Forsberg stopped whatever 46 shots and kind of got them a win that they probably didn't deserve. But it it felt like they kind of got their footing there. And then since then, they've gained a little bit of confidence. So Forsberg would be huge. And then it's the productivity. How about this, okay? In this five-game span, Warnsey, they've scored 17 goals, okay? 16 of them have been scored by the following five players. Alex Formanton, Tim Stutzla, Drake Batherson, Josh Norris, Brady Kachuk. Primary assists have gone to Thomas Shabbat on a lot of them. It's the key six guys. The only guy outside of the core that has scored a goal in the last five games is Austin Watson. That's it. Every other goal has been from this kind of 20-something up-and-coming Stutzla, Formanton, big line. That's what you want to see. And that, listen, like, I think this is what the fans have wanted too. I thought it was interesting that DJ Smith said things have changed. On the weekend, he, he said three times things have changed. They're going to a development mode. They're going to lean on the kids. And this is probably maybe the route they should have taken to begin with. But uh, I think it's clear that Brady Kachuk and Thomas Shabbat are ready to win now. And the way that they're playing, they're ready to win now. It's a question of can they get these guys surrounded with enough talent that they can take the next step? Is this power play looking as good as any Senator power play you've ever seen? Like, I got to go back to Alfie Heatley, Spezza days to see the level of puck movement, the creativity that's going on right now. Even, I mean, it's it's shocking because earlier in the year, there were moments where I go, what are they even doing out there? But right now, they just seem to have so much confidence and just really seem to have found their swagger. I can't believe you're selling Alexei Kovalev on the half wall short. <laughs> great reign of Alex Kovalev uh, in the power play. No, I, I, I think you're right. And, and I think, again, the discrepancy between the two units in terms of talent is it's, it's shocking. I'm not sure that you would find such a great divide between very many teams like that. That's a huge divide. But I always think one of the toughest things to do, and I'm not suggesting that Josh Norris has reached uh, Kucherov, Stamkos, Ovechkin, uh you know, that, that stratosphere by any stretch. But you know that opposition teams have looked at the Ottawa power play and they know Josh Norris on that kind of right-wing face-off dot, one-timer, you got to watch for it. He's been able to pull that off on numerous occasions. And and, and I think Batherson's got this sort of silky, smooth touch on, on his passes, and they're able to find Norris in that spot. And... It's remarkable to me because remember when they brought in Evgeny Dadnov last year, the feeling was, well, that's our bumper guy, right? That's the guy that's going to kind of be in that bumper spot and do something. Well, no, they didn't need him. They, they, Josh Norris has really elevated himself into that premier power play uh, specialist on, on that first unit. So they've been able to do some things with that group that I think are just, it's it's so much fun to watch. And when they're playing with confidence, uh, they're, it feels like they're as good as any power play unit going right now in the, in the National Hockey League. Yeah, I'd agree completely. Uh, we mentioned Alfie there and Daniel Offertson in the news recently. Well, it's been about a month now, but uh, certainly the Hockey Hall of Fame decided to look in another direction once again. And uh, you've been talking quite a bit in The Athletic and, and in various media platforms about how important it is to kind of, from an Ottawa media standpoint, kind of get behind the idea and push for the idea of Daniel Alfredson being in the Hall of Fame. Can you can you kind of expand on that a little? Because I think the average fan would wonder, is that really the media's job? 
Right. And you know what? I like I want to make it clear. It's not that media is like we're not cheerleading uh, in the sense of uh, I think there's a difference between cheerleading and advocating. If that if that makes sense. I know it's right. a it's a might be a, a subtle difference, but I think it's important because uh, I, I don't know that people outside of this market quite understand the greatness of Daniel Alfredson. And that's when it becomes incumbent upon those of us that have watched him with our own eyes uh, over the the, the, the the 17 years that he was here to tell his story, to make his impact known. And, and I think what's just a little bit disappointing, listen, Matt Sundin and Jerome McGinley are first ballot Hall of Famers. I'm, I'm not debating that. I'm not here to debate that. But I am here to debate the fact that I don't think that the discrepancy between Matt Sundin and Daniel Alfredson is so great that one would be a slam dunk first ballot Hall of Famer and the other guy would be on the outside looking in for five years. Like, uh, listen, if you wanted to pass over Alfie once, twice, three times, I get it. But at some point, uh, and here's the problem, though. If you're telling me I have one vote for the Hockey Hall of Fame and I can put in anybody, I would probably go Alex McGilney because I also think he is probably the most deserving guy who's not in there. And the time will come, but... I just think Alfredson, when I hear people just speak about the Sedins so glowingly and say that, well, their first ballot Hall of Famers, I'm like, well, just hang on here a second. How come they get the opportunity to be first ballot Hall of Famers when really their statistical profile is awfully similar to Alfredson's? Um, and I think this is what it boils down to, Warrensy. Matt Sundin was the first overall pick. Daniel and Hendrick Sedin went second and third overall, respectively. Jerome McGinley was also a first-round pick. Daniel Alfredson was a fifth-round pick who kind of had to punch his way up into the NHL, kind of got here a little bit late. And I'd be, I'd really love to do a deeper, deeper dive down the road of, like, how much value we place on guys that are taken in the first round and their perception for the rest of their career versus – the Alfredsons of the world, or even, you know, Mark Stone, I think, has, has battled this in the past. You get taken later, and there's this feeling like, well, you're not quite like a generational talent. You're really good. And and I think that hurts a guy like Daniel Alfredson. I think being picked in the fifth round has hurt him, as ludicrous as that sound. If you, if you stripped away their names and everything, and you just put their statistical profiles up, the five of these guys, the Sedins, uh, Sundin, Aguilon Alfredson, you wouldn't see a huge difference amongst the five players. The one thing you would notice is that, oh, one guy was taken in the fifth round. And that would be the biggest difference. And I wonder if that's an uphill battle that he's still oddly fighting uh, to this day. I guess the Ottawa factor is the big one for me. Just being in Ottawa for you know, most all his career, except for that regrettable final season in Detroit. Because if I'm comparing Marion Hosa, who just got in there, like there's not much to separate i'd take alfie by a slim margin over hosa but hosa only spent you know what, what was it five five years in ottawa six years something like yeah. that and then got an opportunity to go elsewhere play with you know in, in a lot of cases some better talents and better overall teams winning stanley cups and to me in 2021 the stanley cup factor that was a, almost an original six take oh he won a stanley cup that therefore he's yeah. that much better so i think the ottawa factor Certainly plays in because I, I just don't think people uh, have necessarily seen him, like you said, off the top um, to the degree that they should. And uh, yeah, but I, I don't, I barely even chime in on these discussions. He's my favorite player. I'm the founder of the Church of Alfie, so people obviously know 
where yeah. I stand on Daniel Alfredson in the Hockey Hall of Fame. The other angle, though, that I find frustrating is among the many frustrations with this organization is that they somehow found a way to alienate a guy like Daniel Alfredson. This is the best player in franchise history, their longtime captain, and anybody who knows Daniel Alfredson knows he's like the nicest guy in the in the universe, and yet these on multiple occasions they found a way to alienate him to the point where he's no longer part of the organization as everybody knows and is there an opportunity do you think still i mean as as year by year goes and goes by and he's not part of this organization and he turned 49 on saturday i wonder if he'll lose his appetite to be part of an nhl club but do you think the relationship could ever get repaired um or will it just take new ownership um, I think it's the latter. I, I like if you're asking me if the relationship between Alfredson and the current uh, regime, and in particular the owner, can be repaired. My answer would be no, and that's me making a very, very, very educated guess uh, on on the situation. And I, I think it's really tough for Ottawa fans. If you go to a game at Canadian Tire Center, you look up to the rafters. You're going to see two modern-day jerseys retired. You're going to see the number eleven of Daniel Alfredson. You're going to see the number four of Chris Phillips. Both of those guys have left the organization under less than ideal circumstances and are really kind of on the outs right now. And and I, and I, I think that that kind of paints a really interesting picture to me that I don't know how often this would happen. I know it happened in Chicago, did it not, for years with, with Makita and Hull and some of their iconic players. And I think the Islanders had some issues too with some of their legacy players and ownership over the years. So this is – and, and, and a Dave Keon in Toronto is probably – uh, the, the the best example of, uh, you know, Dave Keon uh, just stayed away from Toronto for years and years, right, under Harold, Harold Ballard. And uh, it really took uh, it took time and a new owner to to kind of thaw that relationship. So this isn't unprecedented that that there's been a disconnect between a franchise icon and, and a franchise. But I just don't see it right now. I don't see Alfie coming back. If it, if it had only been one divorce, Warnsey, I could say, yeah, you know what? Maybe they, they they regroup. But it was two. It was two times that um, things got fractured between Daniel Alfredson and the Ottawa Senators. And I just don't see either side going back and try to make, uh, make it work a third time. Yeah, I think that if you're a Sens fan and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's what's my opinion of how things are run with the Senators? And maybe you're on the fence about it. You haven't kind of gotten your finger. I don't really, I'm not really in those boardrooms to hear what's going on. I've never worked for them. I'm not sure what's happening. That to me should always be your tiebreaker that you found a way to alienate those two players like Chris Phillips and Daniel Alfredson. You found a way to alienate them. I want to close it out today with you today, Ian, with um, revenge. It's revenge is what it is. Okay. What the good listener might not know is that uh, our good friend here at Sens Games for many moons, and I'm not sure if you still do it to this day, but in the intermission, the media, we'd all huddle around you and you'd have some kind of cool <laughs> trivia. We'd break up into two teams and we'd all yeah. chime in on uh, oh. your trivia question of the night. Are you still doing that? Well, see, this is where COVID has really sort of impacted it. So the odd time... We will do it, but the, first of all, there's fewer people in the press box, and right. then secondly, you know, we're trying really hard to uh, obviously observe uh, social distancing slash, you, you know, all the, you know, everyone's masked up and try not to get too too close to each other. So we have done it, I think maybe three or four times uh, this season, but it's not, it's certainly not like how it was, say, four or five years ago when you know you get 
10, 12 people all kind of closely gathered around and we were, uh, you know, two teams of five and everyone was kind of close to each other and they were, they were trading notes and, and coming up with answers. So it, it's not quite like that, but you know, fingers crossed it'll, uh, it'll get back to that point at, uh, at some point down the road. All right. Well, We'll look forward to that. In the meantime, we're going to turn the tables on you. You're going to embarrass me. You're going to embarrass me in public. Oh, no. The quiz master will be the quiz taker. So okay. here's the question. Former Sens captain Daniel Offertson turned 49 on Saturday, and it figures he'd be born on the 11th. The current yeah. captain, Brady Kachuk, honored the old captain with a hat trick on the 11th. And did you know yeah. there have been no less than 11 Ottawa Senators to have multiple hat tricks with the team. How many Ian Mendez can you name? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'll, I'll consider it a win if you get to eight in a reasonable amount of time. Obviously, Alfie. Yep. Would be one. Yashin would be one. So Alfie did it ten times. He leads all. Yashin yeah. did it six times. Oh boy. Uh, Marty Havlad had a uh, like sneakily had a few right he had five okay you know, and, I, and i only know that because his name came up recently with a um the four remember him and alfie had four in the same game yes and uh and it was like anyway it, i can't remember what the reason why the, their name i think it was a game recent oh yeah the ottawa washington game where uh remember ottawa had i think batherson had a hat trick and Oshi had a hat trick and Ovechkin almost had a hat trick. Anyway, we were. I think that's yeah. where he came. Okay, so okay. Um, you got three so I'm far. Thi I'm thinking Jason Spezza. I know I can think of at least a couple that he had. He had five. Okay, there you go. Next. So now this is where it becomes a little dicey because I'm I'm gonna say Hosa, but I'm. I, Oddly, not that confident in Marion Hosa, but I feel like he at least had one, or he, he must have at least had two. He had four, so okay. that's a good one as well. Heater. Yep, that would be back. You're back in line. He had five. Okay. Nobody else on the list had more than three. Okay, so you know the one that I know for sure is Bobby Ryan because he had the second one against Vancouver. And uh, I don't, I couldn't tell you who he had his first one uh, against. All I know is the night that he came back and had that wonderful evening at the Canadian Tire Center. I know that that was his second hat trick. I don't, don't ask me who he got his first, but I know that's his second. So now you are at, you need one more to get to the magical eight mark, and then we'll just give everybody the rest of the answers. Okay. So now here's a question Does JG Pajot count? Because I'm thinking of the four goal game, I'm thinking about the Habs hat trick. So those are the playoffs. Does, does JG Pajot count? It does. I, I should have okay. mentioned that at the top that okay. uh, hat tricks. I think when you're talking about hat tricks, they are so kind of informal. It's still, I think you should uh, count them in the playoffs. So that's part okay. of the mix as well. So Pajo, he had three in his career. So he had the four goal game and a couple of uh, three goal performances. And the last three guys all had just two hat tricks in their Sens careers. Let me, let me try to run the table here. Okay. I don't think I will because... Okay, I'm gonna mention. I know I brought up Kovalev earlier, and this is a this is a terrible guess, probably. But all I can think of is his four goal game, where he did the moonwalk against the Flyers. So I'm gonna guess Alexi Kovalev. Like I know he had one four goal game. I don't know if he had another hat trick, but I'm gonna say Alexi Kovalev. You are correct. Two to go. Can he run the table, ladies and gentlemen? The pressure is almost too much. Uh, okay. 
Radic Bonk. Radic Bonk. And there is where it all comes ah, to an end. Jeez, I know he had one hat trick for sure. He had like a huge six-point game. I think when, when Bonk had... And if it wasn't Tampa, it was against Florida. He had three and three. Like, he had three goals, three assists back in the day. And uh, I know he had at least one. So I, and so now that I was I was like, let me think of guys that I know at least had one. Like, like Duclair came into my mind. Mike Fisher came into my mind. Like, Brandon Bochensky came into my mind. Because wow, he actually yeah. had a regular. He actually had a regular season hat trick. Yeah, he was uh, amazing uh, that one year. He had a great preseason and a nice October, and then goodbye, bye-bye. Okay. Uh, the last two. The last it, two. Is, uh, you want me to Milan give them two? Is Milan McCulloch one of them? He is. Well ah, done. Nuts. You know what? That That's on me. I should have I should have gotten Milan McCulloch because he he's an underrated guy. And then, it, the other guy must be like one of those 90s, like Dan Quinn rolling in with two hat tricks or something. Dan Quinn did have one, but not he two. He was another... I think was he another three goal six point guy against like Tampa or Florida? I think so. Oh yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I, I remember his name coming up when Alfie got seven points. Dan yeah. Quinn's name kind of came up that night. So right, is it like a Dan, is it Dan Quinn like type of guy? It's nineties for sure, and that would be Bob Kadelski. Oh yeah, you know what? Kadelski had like he had like forty goals in fewer than a hundred games. I think with Ottawa, right? Like he's he's got a pretty pretty unbelievable uh, goals per game. Uh, with the sense so that that would make sense ah, I, I don't think yeah. i would have got kadelski though he well he was when they traded him uh some sense fans know have been around long enough when they traded bob kadelski he was actually on pace for a 50 goal season like right. who does that who does that oh i know a team that wants to draft alexander <laughs> dick <laughs> all right ian we appreciate you coming on today and talking some sense with us doing a little trivia indulging us on that and uh, we look forward to talking again soon Hey, this was awesome, Warnsy. Anytime you need me, just uh, just give me a holler. And uh, listen, happy holidays to you and all uh, all your listeners. All right, thank you to Ian Mendez from The Athletic. Sorry that our schedules collided, that we weren't able to all three of us be in on that call, but always good to check in with Ian. And uh, that is partly because you have that late night getting in at two in the morning so um all good but uh yeah great to have ian on and uh he's a trivia whiz that one particularly when it comes to the ottawa senators yeah uh, and you know what that's the second time now with the last time we had ian on i missed him too i don't know if you remember it's just it's bad luck we gotta we gotta start figuring this out buddy it was all good though good for the listener the listener had a chance to hear ian had a chance to hear you had had a chance to hear me asking the questions and all that and a few takes in there as well uh but i want to close it out today with ben bishop Ben Bishop is going to announce his retirement on Tuesday. That's kind of out of the blue. Um, figured he had a few years left, but I guess he's got a chronic knee thing happening. So he's going to retire from the Dallas Stars and the National Hockey League on Tuesday. And it certainly brings back some quick memories when you think about his time with the Ottawa Senators. And uh, I know I, the team's going well right now. They won four or five, so it's really not a time to be negative. But certainly that has to go down as one of the worst trades in NHL history to bring in good old Corey Conacher, one for one for Ben Bishop. Yeah, when you when they got him, it was exciting, right? And then, ugh, he turned out to be a hell of a lot better than everyone thought he would. Well, did he or didn't he? Like, are you are you what side are you on here, Steve? Did he turn out to be better than they thought he was, or was he as good as that? And they just they just didn't get enough for him. What do you? How do you feel? 
Oh, I thought it was, at the time, I thought it was interesting because Corey Conacher had been playing really well. Now he was playing with, I think at that time, uh, St. Louis and, I don't know if it was Stamkos or Le Cavalier, but he was on the top line and getting some serious points. And he had a game against the Sens that season where he looked really good. And so I think the Sens kind of bought into all of that. And uh, as was the case with Alex Chiasson or Bobby Ryan, they acquire these guys thinking that they're getting the full package when in reality there's two pretty good line mates in each of those three cases that aren't coming to Ottawa. So it, it became clear very quickly that Corey Conacher was being pulled along by his line mates in Tampa Bay, and that's why he's in Switzerland now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It became it became evident that you were only you know, no no you're only getting Corey Conacher. You're not getting the rest of those guys. Yeah. Right, exactly. Oops. Yeah. So that that's the memory. And then uh, the other factor was uh, the decision. The, you think about the great run Craig Anderson had. He would probably be, as far as Ottawa Senators' body of work, he'd be the best goalie in Sens history. In terms of best goalie, to be Dominic Hasek, I think. Um, but uh, at the time, it was Anderson. They had Ben Bishop at that point, And they had Robin Leonard. And we all wondered, much like we are at this moment in time with the like we said off the top of the big bulk of goalies with potential in the organization. They had three back then, and they decided to push all their chips into the middle of the table, betting on Craig Anderson. If you could do it again, would you do it that way again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Andy worked out. I I, I was always happy with Anderson here as a goaltender. Um, it was, but I, sorry, I might've nodded off when you were asking that question. What it was it the decision between Leonard and Bishop? Would I do that again, or would I Leonard, choose Anderson? Bishop, over? Well, yeah. it was Anderson, Leonard, and Bishop. All three were there at the same time. Leonard got traded to Buffalo. Yeah, but at the time, the decision wasn't necessarily uh, Bishop versus Anderson or even Leonard. Anderson was number one uh, in my mind at the time, and it was okay. Which one of these two are we keeping, Bishop or Leonard? That was the way I I, I recall it. Was that not the way it was? Well, Leonard had just recently won an American Hockey League title and had you right. know, was filled with potential. They brought in Ben Bishop, I think, from St. Louis for a second Correct. rounder. And all three of them, I mean, yes, Anderson had the bigger body of NHL work, so he'd probably be the guy yeah. you're, you're looking at. I'm just saying in an alternate universe, now knowing how things have played out over the last 10 years, and that's when the deal went down, a fun discussion. You could ask yourself the question, if you had it to do over again, would you go – would you have handed the reins to Anderson, Leonard, or Bishop? I think with 2020 hindsight, they turned out just fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it's a, you'll never know how things might have gone. Um, I, I really feel like the way Robin Leonard looks now, but who knows how his life would have played out had he stayed in Ottawa. You know, he obviously had – he's got the bipolar issues. He's had some other issues as well. And so who knows how things play out. If I'm just looking at the guy that I think is the most talented goaltender of the three, mm -hmm. I don't think it's Craig Anderson, to be honest. No, it's not. Yeah, I, I think it's probably Bishop is the number one, but Bishop's the one that had the most injuries. Bishop's the one that's had the most stops and starts to his career. Even though Leonard has had the same sort of thing, I think Bishop's been the one that, that that's played the least, but he is probably the most skilled of the three. But Andy ended up being the most stable of the three, and it was that stability that carried the Senators for a long time. When you think about the goaltending position, and of course it's dominated by the butterfly position, 
I think about a guy who's six foot nine and thinking about getting down into the butterfly with those long legs and the torque that must be applied to the knee area. Really, a guy that tall that plays for a decade in the NHL, you almost assume they're eventually going to have hip and, and knee problems, right? Yeah, I can't, it's kind of like, gee, that was inevitable, wasn't it? You don't need 20-20 hindsight to figure that out. You can figure it out right now before you even start. It's it's yeah. like the golf swing nowadays. The way these guys swing clubs is in any wonder that they get the kind of injuries that they get now that the, the Jack Nicholas's and Arnold Palmer's of the world never dreamed of having those kind of injuries. Yeah, I mean, that that incredible torque on the front knee and the, and the back yeah. with the vicious swings they're taking, no question about it. Yeah, so anyway, it's um it's unfortunate for Ben Bishop. He's uh I think he's 35 or 36, so he's still had a good career. He helped lead the Dallas Stars to a Stanley Cup final a couple of years ago. So um yeah, disappointing for him for sure, but uh a reason to go back in the old memory banks to think back to an earlier day with the Sens in goal. And that is where we'll call it quits right now. I want to remind everybody that you can check out our website, sensnationhockey.com. I'm going to go watch a little Grey Cup, a little NFL action. I'm kind of torn. I'm a Packers fan, and they're playing this evening, but so is the Grey Cup between Winnipeg and Hamilton. I'm going to have to maybe do picture in picture. What are you up to this afternoon? We have a uh, team uh, gingerbread house uh, building competition going on this afternoon, Steve. Uh, The coaching staff are the judges, so we'll be in front of the TV. I'm not sure what game I'm going to watch. I think the, the Cowboys have just started, have they not? I mean, watch a little bit of that. I don't yeah. get the Tampa game because I, I need to see my Tom play. But I think it's the same as you, but it, but I will definitely turn over. Uh, I'll switch over and watch the CFL. I got I got to watch the Grey Cup. It's just, that's it's a, it's a fact of life, isn't it, for a Canadian boy? I suppose so. I suppose yeah. so. Well, enjoy it all. And we uh, thank you for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy your football. Uh, the Sens next action. By the way, I should probably mention that. Uh, the Sens still have some uh, some work to do here. They've got uh, they're going to be in Florida. They're going to be in Tampa Bay, and then they get the Flyers. And uh, it's a quick word from DJ Smith on the upcoming road trip. Florida is just ripping teams apart at home. I think they're fourteen or fifteen and one at home. Um, they score like crazy there. So I mean, we've got two really tough games there, and then and then off to Philly. So it's a tough trip. But if we keep using the bench and 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 our special team stays stays Confident DJ Smith, and certainly in this this stretch they're on right now, Colorado, Carolina, Tampa Bay, they got wins over those three teams, and I don't think anybody would suggest that those teams are not at least in the discussion as Stanley Cup contenders. So interesting road trip on the way, and we'll have uh, more in our next episode, and that will be coming up on Thursday. Thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being with us on the Jim K. Ford Sens Nation podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and review. Share the show with your friends and followers or become a member on Patreon. Check out our website today at SendsNationHockey.com.